This is Natalie Nottis with Stories from Among the Stars. You're listening to The Three-Body Problem. 23. Red Coast 6. The next eight years were among the most peaceful of Yatwinsia's life. The horror experienced during the Cultural Revolution gradually subsided, and she was finally able to relax a little. The Red Coast Project completed its testing and breaking-in phases, settling down into routine operation. Fewer and fewer technical problems remained, and both work and life became regular. In peace, what had been suppressed by anxiety and fear began to reawaken. Yeah found that the real pain had just begun. Nightmarish memories, like embers coming back to life, burn more and more fiercely, searing her heart. For most people, perhaps time would have gradually healed these wounds. After all, during the Cultural Revolution, many people suffered fates similar to hers, and compared to many of them, Yeah was relatively fortunate. But Yeah had the mental habits of a scientist, and she refused to forget. Rather, she looked with a rational gaze on the madness and hatred that had harmed her. Yaz's rational consideration of humanity's evil side began the day she read Silent Spring. As she grew closer to Yan Wenning, he was able to get her many classics of foreign language philosophy and history under the guise of gathering technical research materials. The bloody history of humanity shocked her, and the extraordinary insights of the philosophers also led her to understand the most fundamental and secret aspects of human nature. Indeed, even on top of Radar Peak, a place the world almost forgot, the madness and irrationality of the human race were constantly on display. Yeah saw that the forest below the peak continued to fall to the deranged logging by her former comrades. Patches of bare earth grew daily, as though those parts of the greater Kingon Mountains had had their skin torn off. When those patches grew into regions and then into a connected whole, The few surviving trees seemed rather abnormal. To complete the slash-and-burn plan, fires were lit on the bare fields, and Radar Peak became the refuge for birds escaping the fiery inferno. As the fires raged, the sorrowful cries of birds with singed feathers at the base never ceased. The insanity of the human race had reached its historical zenith. The Cold War was at its height. Nuclear missiles capable of destroying the Earth ten times over could be launched at a moment's notice, spread out among the countless missile silos dotting two continents and hidden within ghost-like nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarines patrolling deep under the sea. A single Lafayette or Yankee-class submarine held enough warheads to destroy hundreds of cities and kill hundreds of millions but most people continued their lives as if nothing was wrong. As an astrophysicist, Yeah was strongly against nuclear weapons. She knew this was a power that should belong only to the stars. She knew also that the universe had even more terrible forces, black holes, antimatter, and more. Compared to those forces, a thermonuclear bomb was nothing but a tiny candle, If humans obtained mastery over one of those other forces, the world might be vaporized in a moment. In the face of madness, rationality was powerless. 
Four years after entering Red Coast Base, Ya and Yang married. Yang truly loved her. For love, he gave up his future. The fiercest stage of the Cultural Revolution was over, and the political climate had grown somewhat milder. Yang wasn't persecuted exactly for his marriage. However, because he married a woman who had been deemed to be a counter-revolutionary, he was viewed as politically immature and lost his position as chief engineer. The only reason that he and his wife were allowed to stay on the base as ordinary technicians was because the base could not do without their technical skills. Yeah accepted Yang's proposal, mainly out of gratitude. If he hadn't brought her into this safe haven in her most perilous moment, she would probably no longer be alive. Yang was a talented man, cultured and with good taste. She didn't find him unpleasant, but her heart was like ashes from which the flame of love could no longer be lit. As she pondered human nature, Yao was faced with an ultimate loss of purpose and sank into another spiritual crisis. She had once been an idealist who needed to give all her talent to a great goal, but now she realized that all she had done was meaningless, and the future could not have any meaningful pursuits either. As this mental state persisted, she gradually felt more and more alienated from the world. She didn't belong. The sense of wandering in the spiritual wilderness tormented her. After she made a home with Yang, her soul became homeless. One night, Ya was working the night shift. This was the loneliest time. In the deep silence of midnight, the universe revealed itself to its listeners as a vast desolation. What Ya disliked most was seeing the waves that slowly crawled across the display, a visual record of the meaningless noise Red Coast picked up from space. Ya felt this interminable wave was an abstract view of the universe, one end connected to the endless past, the other to the endless future, and in the middle, only the ups and downs of random chance. Without life, without pattern, the peaks and valleys at different heights like uneven grains of sand, the whole curve like a one-dimensional desert made of all the grains of sand lined up in a row, lonely, desolate, so long that it was intolerable. You could follow it and go forward or backward as long as you liked, but you'd never find the end. On this day, however, Ya saw something odd when she glanced at the waveform display. Even experts had a hard time telling with the naked eye whether a waveform carried information. But Ya was so familiar with the noise of the universe that she could tell that the wave that now moved in front of her eyes had something extra. The thin curve, rising and falling, seemed to possess a soul. She was certain that the radio signal before had been modulated by intelligence. She rushed to another terminal and checked the computer's rating of the signal's recognizability, A-A-A-A-A. Before this, no radio signal received by Red Coast ever garnered a recognizability rating above C. An A rating meant the likelihood that the transmission contained intelligent information was greater than 90%. A rating of A-A-A-A-A was a special extreme case. It meant the received transmission used the exact same coding language as Red Coast's own outbound transmission. Yeah turned on the Red Coast deciphering system. 
The software attempted to decipher any signal whose recognizability rating was above B. During the entire time that the Red Coast project had been running, it had never been invoked even once in real use. Based on test data, deciphering a transmission suspected of being a message might require a few days or even a few months of computing time, and the result would be failure more than half the time. But this time, as soon as the file containing the original transmission was submitted, the display showed that the deciphering was complete. Yeah, opened the resulting document, and for the first time, a human read a message from another world. The content was not what anyone had imagined. It was a warning, repeated three times. Do not answer. Do not answer. Do not answer. Still caught up by the dizzying excitement and confusion, Yeah deciphered a second message. This world has received your message. I am a pacifist in this world. It is the luck of your civilization that I am the first to receive your message. I am warning you, do not answer. Do not answer. Do not answer. There are tens of millions of stars in your direction. As long as you do not answer, this world will not be able to ascertain the source of your transmission. But if you do answer, the source will be located right away. Your planet will be invaded. Your world will be conquered. Do not answer. Do not answer. Do not answer. As she read the flashing green text on the display, Yeah was no longer capable of thinking clearly. Her mind, inhibited by shock and excitement, could only understand this. No more than nine years had passed since the time she had sent the message to the sun then the source of this transmission must be around four light-years away. It could only have come from the closest extrasolar stellar system, Alpha Centauri. The universe was not desolate. The universe was not empty. The universe was full of life. Humankind had cast their gaze to the end of the universe, but they had no idea that intelligent life already existed around the stars closest to them. Yeah stared at the waveform display. The signal continued to stream from the universe into the Red Coast antenna. She opened up another interface and began real-time deciphering. The messages began to show up immediately on the screen. During the next four hours, Yeah learned of the existence of Trisolaris, learned of the civilization that had been reborn again and again, and learned of their plan to migrate to the stars. At four in the morning, the transmission from Alpha Centauri ended. The deciphering system continued to run uselessly and emitted an unceasing string of failure codes. The Red Coast monitoring system was once again only hearing the noise of the universe. But Yeah was certain that what she had just experienced was not a dream. The sun really was an amplifying antenna. But why had her experiment eight years ago not received any echoes? Why had the waveforms of Jupiter's radio outbursts not matched the later radiation from the sun? Later, Yeah came up with many reasons. It was possible that the base communication office couldn't receive radio waves at that frequency. Or maybe the office did receive the echo, but it sounded like noise, and so the operator thought it was nothing. 
As for the waveforms, it was possible that when the sun amplified the radio waves, it also added another wave to it. It would likely be a periodic wave that could be easily filtered out by the alien deciphering system. But to her unaided eye, the waveform from Jupiter and from the sun would appear very different. Years later, after Ye had left Red Coast, she would manage to confirm her last guess. The sun had added a sine wave. She looked around alertly. There were three others in the main computer room. Two of the three were chatting in a corner, while the last was napping before a terminal. In the data analysis section of the monitoring system, only the two terminals in front of her could view the recognizability rating of a signal and access the deciphering system. Maintaining her composure, she worked quickly and moved all of the received messages to a multiply encrypted invisible subdirectory. Then she copied over a segment of noise received a year ago as a substitute for the transmission received during the last five hours. Finally, from the terminal, she placed a short message into the Red Coast's transmission buffer. Yeah, got up and left the monitoring main control room. A chilly wind blew against her feverish face. Dawn had just brightened the eastern sky, and she followed the dimly lit pebble-paved path to the transmission main control room. Above her, the Red Coast antenna lay open, silently, like a giant palm toward the universe. The dawn turned the guard at the door into a silhouette, and as usual, he did not pay attention to Yeah as she entered. The transmission main control room was much dimmer than the monitoring main control room. Yeah passed through rows of cabinets to stand in front of the control panel and flip more than a dozen switches with practiced ease to warm up the transmission system. The two men on duty next to the control panel looked up at her with sleepy eyes, and one turned to glance at the clock. Then one of them went back to his nap, while the other flipped through a well-thumbed newspaper. At the base, Yeah had no political status, but she did have some freedom in technical matters. She often tested the equipment before a transmission. Although she was early today, the transmission wasn't scheduled to occur until three hours later. Warming up a bit early wasn't that unusual. What happened next was the longest half hour of her life. During this time, Ya adjusted the transmission frequency to the optimal frequency for amplification by the solar energy mirror and increased the transmission power to maximum. Then, putting her eyes to the eyepiece of the optical positioning system, she watched the sun rise above the horizon, activated the positioning system for the antenna, and slowly aligned it with the sun. As the gigantic antenna turned, the rumbling noise shook the main control room. One of the men on duty looked at Yeah again, but said nothing. The sun was now completely above the horizon. The crosshair of the Red Coast positioning system was aimed at its upper edge to account for the time it would take for the radio wave to travel to the sun. The transmission system was ready. The transmit button was a long rectangle, very similar to the space key on a computer keyboard, except that it was red. Yaz's hand hovered two centimeters above it. The fate of the entire human race was now tied to these slender fingers. Without hesitation, Yeah pressed the button. What are you doing? One of the men on duty asked, still sleepy. Yeah smiled at him and said nothing. 
She pressed a yellow button to stop the transmission. Then she moved the control stick until the antenna was pointed elsewhere. She left the control panel and walked away. The man looked at his watch. It was time to get off work. He picked up the diary and thought about recording Yaz's operation of the transmission system. It was, after all, out of the ordinary. But then he looked at the paper tape and saw that she had transmitted for no more than three seconds. He tossed the diary back, yawned, put on his army cap, and left. The message that was winging its way to the sun said, Come here. I will help you conquer this world. Our civilization is no longer capable of solving its own problems. We need your force to intervene. The newly risen sun dazzled Yawintsia. Not too far from the door of the main control room, she collapsed onto the lawn in a faint. When she woke up, she found herself in the base clinic. Next to her bed sat Yang, watching her with concern like that time many years ago on the helicopter. The doctor told Ya to be careful and get plenty of rest. You are pregnant, he said. 24. Rebellion After Ya Wintzia finished recounting the history of her first contact with Trisolaris, the abandoned cafeteria remained silent. Many present were apparently just hearing the complete story for the first time. Wong was deeply absorbed by the narrative and temporarily forgot about the danger and terror he faced. Unable to stop himself, he asked, How did the ETO then develop to its present scale? Yeah, replied, I'd have to start with how I got to know Evans but every comrade here already knows that part of history, so we shouldn't waste time on it now. I can tell you later. However, whether we'll have such an opportunity depends on you. Xiao Wang, let's talk about your nanomaterial. This uh, lord that you talk about, why is it so afraid of nanomaterial? because it can allow humans to escape gravity and engage in space construction at a much larger scale. The space elevator? Wong suddenly understood. Yes. If ultra-strong nanomaterials could be mass-produced, then that would lay the technical foundation for building a space elevator from the ground up to a geostationary point in space. For our Lord, this is but a tiny invention. But for humans on Earth, its meaning would be significant. With this technology, humans could easily enter near-Earth space and build up large-scale defensive structures. Thus, this technology must be extinguished. What is at the end of the countdown? Wong asked the question that frightened him the most. Yeah, smiled. I don't know. But trying to stop me is useless. This is not basic research. Based on what we've already found out, someone else can figure out the rest. Wong's voice was loud but anxious. Yes, it is rather useless. It's far more effective to confuse the researchers' minds. 
But, like you point out, we didn't stop the progress in time. After all, what you do is applied research. Our technique is far more effective against basic research. Speaking of basic research, how did your daughter die? The question silenced Yao for a few seconds. Wong noticed that her eyes dimmed almost imperceptibly, but she then resumed the conversation. Indeed, compared to our Lord who possesses peerless strength, everything we do is meaningless. We're just doing whatever we can. Just as she finished speaking, several loud booms rang out and the doors to the cafeteria broke open. A team of soldiers holding submachine guns rushed in. Wong realized that they were not armed police, but the real army. Noiselessly, they proceeded along the walls and soon surrounded the rebels of the ETO. Shu Yong was the last to enter. His jacket was open, and he held the barrel of a pistol so that the grip was like the head of a hammer. Da Xia looked around arrogantly, then suddenly dashed forward. His hand flashed, and there was the dull thud of metal striking against a skull. An ETO rebel fell to the ground, and the gun that he was trying to draw tumbled to fall some distance away. Several soldiers began to shoot at the ceiling, and dust and debris fell. Someone grabbed Wang Miao and pulled him away from the ETO ranks until he was safe behind a row of soldiers. Drop all your weapons onto the table. I swear, I'm gonna kill the next son of a bitch who tries anything. Dasha pointed at the submachine guns arrayed behind him. I know that none of you is afraid to die, but we're not afraid either. I'm gonna say this up front. Normal police procedures and laws don't apply to you. Even the human laws of warfare no longer apply to you. Since you've decided to treat the entire human race as your enemy, there's no longer anything we wouldn't do to you. There was some commotion among the ETO members, but no one panicked. Yaz's face remained impassive. Three people suddenly rushed out of the crowd, including the young woman who had twisted Pan Han's neck. They ran toward the three-body sculpture, and each grabbed one of the spheres and held it in front of his or her chest. The young woman raised the bright metal sphere before her with both hands, as though she were getting ready to start a gymnastics routine. Smiling, she said, Officers, we hold in our hands three nuclear bombs, each with a yield of about 1.5 kilotons. Not too big, since we like small toys. This is the detonator. Everyone in the cafeteria froze. The only one who moved was Xia Chiang. He put his gun back into the holster under his left arm and placed his hands together calmly. Our demand is simple. Let the commander go, the young woman said. Then we can play whatever game you want. Her tone suggested that she wasn't afraid of Shu Qiong and the soldiers at all. I stay with my comrades, Yeah said calmly. Can you confirm her claim? Dasha asked an officer next to him, an explosives expert. The officer threw a bag in front of the three ETO members holding the spheres. 
One of the ETO fighters picked up the bag and took out a spring scale, a bigger version of the one some customers brought to street markets to verify the portions measured by vendors. He placed his metal sphere into the bag, attached it to the spring scale, and held it aloft. The gauge extended about halfway and stopped. The young woman chuckled. The explosives expert also laughed contemptuously. The ETO member took out the sphere and tossed it on the ground. Another ETO fighter picked up the scale and the bag and repeated the procedure with his sphere and ended up also tossing the sphere to the ground. The young woman laughed once more and picked up the bag herself. She loaded her sphere into the bag, hung it on the hook of the scale, and the gauge immediately dropped to its bottom, the spring in the scale having been fully extended. The smile on the explosives expert's face froze. He whispered to Da Shu, Damn, they really do have one. Da Shu remained impassive. The explosives expert said, we can at least confirm that there are heavy elements, fissile material inside. We don't know if the detonation mechanism works. The flashlights attached to the soldiers' guns focused on the young woman holding the nuclear bomb. While she held the destructive power of 1.5 kilotons of TNT in her hands, she smiled brightly, as though enjoying applause and praise on a spotlit stage. I have an idea. Shoot the sphere. The explosives expert whispered to Dasha. Won't that set off the bomb? The conventional explosives around the outside will go off, but the explosion will be scattered. It won't lead to the kind of precise compression of the fissile material in the center necessary for a nuclear explosion. Dasha stared at the nuclear woman, saying nothing. How about snipers? Almost imperceptibly, Da Shu shook his head. Well, there's no good position. She's sharp as a tack. As soon as she's targeted by a sniper scope, she'll know. Da Shu strode forward. He pushed the crowd apart and stood in the middle of the empty space. Stop! The young woman warned Da Shu, staring at him intently. Her right thumb was poised over the detonator. Her face was no longer smiling in the flashlight beams. Calm down, Dasha said, standing about seven or eight meters from her. He took an envelope from his pocket. I have some information you'll definitely want to know. Your mother has been found. The young woman's feverish eyes dimmed. At that moment, her eyes were truly windows to her soul. Dasha took two steps forward. He was now no more than five meters from her. She raised the bomb and warned him with her eyes, but she was already distracted. One of the two ETO members who had tossed away fake bombs strode toward Dasha to take the envelope from him. As the man blocked the woman's view of Dasha, he drew his gun with a lightning-fast motion. The woman only saw a flash by the ear of the man trying to take the letter from Dasha before the bomb in her hands exploded. After hearing the muffled explosion, Wong saw nothing before his eyes but darkness. Someone dragged him out of the cafeteria. Thick yellow smoke poured out of the door, and a cacophony of shouting and gunshots came from inside. From time to time, people rushed through the smoke and out of the cafeteria. 
Wong got up and tried to go back into the cafeteria, but the explosives expert grabbed him around the waist and stopped him. Careful, radiation. The chaos eventually subsided. More than a dozen ETO fighters were killed in the gunfight. The rest, more than 200, including Yawintsia, were arrested. The explosion had turned the nuclear woman into a bloody mess, but she was the only casualty of the aborted bomb. The man who had tried to take the letter from Da Xia was severely injured, but since his body had shielded Da Xia, his wounds were light. However, like everyone else who remained in the cafeteria after the explosion, Xia suffered severe radiation contamination. Through the small window of an ambulance, Wong stared at Da Xia, who was lying inside. A wound on Da Xia's head continued to ooze blood. The nurse who was dressing the wound wore transparent protective gear. Da Xia and Wong could only talk through their mobile phones. Who was that young woman's mother? Wong asked. Da Xia grinned. Fucked if I know. Just a guess. A girl like that most likely has mother issues. After doing this for more than 20 years, I'm pretty good at reading people. I bet you're happy to be proven right. There really was someone behind all this. Wong forced himself to smile, hoping Da Xia could see it. Buddy, you're the one who was right. Da Xia laughed, shaking his head. I would never have thought that actual fucking aliens would be involved. 25. The Deaths of Lei Zicheng and Yang Weining. Interrogator. Name? Ya Wincia. Ya Wincia. Interrogator. Birthday. Yeah. June, 1943. Interrogator. Employment? Yeah. Professor of Astrophysics at Tsinghua University. Retired in 2004. In consideration of your health, you may stop the interrogation temporarily at any time. Thank you. I'm fine. We're only conducting a regular criminal investigation now and won't get into more sensitive matters. We would like to finish quickly. We hope you'll cooperate. I know what you're referring to. Yes, I'll cooperate. Our investigation revealed that while you were working at Red Coast Base, you were suspected of murder. I did kill two people. When? The afternoon of October 21st, 1979. Names of the victims? Base Commissar Lei Zicheng and my husband, Base Engineer Yang Weining. Explain your motive for murder. Can I assume that you understand the relevant background? I know the basics. If something is unclear, I'll ask you. Good. On the day when I received the extraterrestrial communication and replied, I learned that I wasn't the only one to get the message. Lei did as well. Lei was a typical political cadre of the time. 
so he possessed an extremely keen sense for politics and saw everything through an ideological lens. Unbeknownst to most of the technical staff at Red Coast Base, he ran a small program in the background on the main computer. This program constantly read from the transmission and reception buffers and stored the results in a hidden encrypted file. This way, there would be a copy of everything Red Coast sent and received that only he could read. It was from this copy that he discovered the extraterrestrial message. On the afternoon after I sent my message toward the rising sun, and shortly after I learned that I was pregnant at the base clinic, Lay called me to his office, and I saw that his terminal displayed the message from Trisolaris that I had received the night before. Eight hours have passed since you received the first message. Instead of making a report, you deleted the original message and maybe hit a copy. Isn't that right? I kept my head down and did not reply. I know your next move. You planned to reply. If I hadn't discovered this in time, you could have ruined all human civilization. Of course, I'm not saying that we're afraid of an interstellar invasion. Even if we assume the worst, and that really did happen, the outer space invaders would surely drown in the ocean of the people's righteous war. I realized then that he didn't know that I'd already replied. When I placed the answer into the transmission buffer, I didn't use the regular file interface. Luckily, this got around his monitoring program. Yeah, Wincia, I knew you were capable of something like this. You've always held a deep hatred toward the party and the people. You would seize any opportunity for revenge. Do you know the consequences of your actions? Of course I knew, so I nodded. Lay was silent for a moment, but what he said next was unexpected. Yeah, Wincia, I have no pity for you at all. You've always been a class enemy who views the people as your adversaries. But I've served many years with Yang. I cannot bear to see him ruined along with you, and I certainly cannot allow his child to be ruined as well. You're pregnant, aren't you? What he said wasn't idle speculation. During that era, my deeds would certainly have implicated my husband if revealed, regardless of whether he had anything to do with them. Blake kept his voice very low. Right now, only you and I know what happened. What we must do is to minimize the impact of your actions, pretend that it never happened, and never mention it to anyone, including Young. I'll take care of the rest. As long as you cooperate, you can avoid the disastrous consequences. I immediately knew what Lay was after. He wanted to become the first man to discover extraterrestrial intelligence. It really was a great opportunity to get his name into the history textbooks. I assented. Then I left his office. I'd already decided everything. I took a small wrench and went to the equipment closet for the processing module of the receiver. 
because I often needed to inspect the equipment no one paid attention. I opened the main cabinet and carefully loosened the bolt that secured the ground wire to the bottom. The interference on the receiver suddenly increased, and the ground resistance went up from 0.6 ohms to 5 ohms. The technician on duty thought it was a problem with the ground wire because that kind of malfunction happened a lot. It was an easy diagnosis. He would never have guessed that the problem was at this end, at the top of the ground wire, because this end was securely fastened out of the way, and I told him that I had just inspected it. The top of Radar Peak had an unusual geological feature, a layer of clay more than a dozen meters thick, poor conductivity, covered it. When the ground wire wasn't buried deeply, ground resistance was invariably too high. However, the ground wire couldn't be sunk too deep either, because the clay layer had a strong corrosive effect, and after a while it would corrode the middle section of the ground wire. In the end, the only solution was to drape the ground wire over the lip of the cliff until the tip was below the clay layer, and then bury the ground terminal into the cliff at that point. Even so, the grounding wasn't very stable, and the resistance was often excessive. Whenever such problems occurred, the trouble always involved the part of the wire going into the cliff. Whoever was assigned to repair it would have to go over the edge of the cliff, dangling on ropes. The technician on duty informed the maintenance squad of the issue. One of the soldiers in the squad tied a rope to an iron post and then rappelled down the cliff. After half an hour down below, he climbed back up, soaked in sweat, saying that he couldn't find the malfunction. It seemed that the next monitoring session would have to be delayed. There was no choice but to inform the base command center. I waited by the iron post at the top of the cliff. Very soon, just as I had planned, Lei Zichang came back with that soldier. To be honest, Lei was very dedicated to his job and faithfully followed the demands placed on political officers during that era. Become a part of the masses and always be on the front line. Maybe it was all for show, but he really was a good performer. Whenever there was some difficult and perilous work at the base, he was sure to volunteer. One of the tasks that he performed more than anyone else was to repair the ground wire, a task both dangerous and tiring. Even though this job wasn't particularly demanding technically, it did benefit from experience. There were many causes of malfunction, a loose contact due to exposure to open air, difficult to detect. Or possibly the location where the ground wire went into the cliff was too dry. The volunteer soldiers responsible for external maintenance were all new, and none had much experience, so I had guessed that Lay would most likely show up. He put on the safety harness and went over the cliff edge on the rope, as though I didn't exist. I made some excuse to get rid of the soldier who brought him, so that I was the only one left on the cliff. Then I took a short hacksaw out of my pocket. It was made from a longer saw blade, broken into three pieces and then stacked together. 
with the stacked blades, any cut I made would be particularly ragged, and it would not be obvious later that the rope was cut through with a tool. Just then, my husband, Yang Wei Ning, showed up. After I explained to him what had happened, he looked over the cliff edge. Then he said that to inspect the ground terminal in the cliff face required digging, and the work would be too much for just lay. He wanted to go down to help. So he put on the safety harness left by that other soldier. I asked him to use another rope, but he said no. The rope that Lay was on was thick and sturdy and could easily bear the weight of two. I insisted, so he told me to go get the rope. By the time I rushed back to the cliff with the rope, he had already gone down over the side. I poked my head over the edge and saw that he and Lay had already finished their inspection and were climbing back up. Lay was in the front. There would never be another chance. I took out my hacksaw and cut through the rope. Interrogator. I want to ask a question, but I won't record the answer. How did you feel at the time? Yeah. Calm. I did it without feeling anything. I had finally found a goal to which I could devote myself. I didn't care what price had to be paid, either by me or by others. I also knew that the entire human race would pay an unprecedented price for this goal. This was a very insignificant beginning. All right, continue. I heard two or three surprised cries, and then the sound of bodies slamming against the rocks at the cliff bottom. After a while, I saw that the stream at the foot of the cliff had turned red. That's all I'll say about that. I understand. This is the record. Please check it over carefully. If there are no errors, please sign it. You've been listening to The Three-Body Problem. Subscribe to this podcast so you can stay up to date on the newest installments of this enthralling sci-fi adventure. Or if you just can't wait, you can buy the audiobook of The Three-Body Problem, as well as the next two books in the series, wherever books or audiobooks are sold.